Hi, and welcome to the Unlocking Customer Service Podcast. I'm your host, Meg Richmond. I'm here every week talking with guests who can help you realize the full potential of your contact center and customer service team to keep growing your business. Oh, and you can do all of that while still prioritizing your people. In fact, that's the secret to it all. Let's chat with our next guest. So today we're sitting down with Chip Knighty, CDO and founder of Kairos, an executive coaching firm that challenges C-suite leaders to solve their hardest problems by building individual and team capacity. Uh, so Chip, we are here today to talk a little bit about one of the tools in the toolbox. Could you give us a background of uh, what, where you came up with this and what drove you to, to develop this? Well, I, there's two tools I, I wanted to talk about today. One would be what we call a box chart. And the other one is a personality model called the Enneagram. We did not develop the Enneagram. The Enneagram has been around for decades, but the box chart is something we came up with, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago. And I wasn't exposed to the Enneagram until about five years ago. So for me, the box chart came first, but for other people who are paying attention, the Enneagram came first. And the box chart is a tool that we use when we're trying to help somebody make a change for themselves. And it's a, an acronym. And B stands for behavior. O stands for outcome. And X stands for transformation. And if we had said T instead of X, it would be bot, which doesn't sound as cool. A bot chart. Yeah. <laughs> now, what happens is when we talk about transformation, we're talking about the internal transformation that occurs within people. So this can be a change in attitudes or beliefs or values or perspectives. And when those things shift, what we find is whatever's on the inside finds its way out. And so we may want people to change a behavior, but if we coerce a behavior change through incentives or paying attention, eventually those, the energy to do that runs out and then people revert to form. What we really want to see is a sustainable change in behavior, and that needs to be driven from an internal transformation. So maybe a better way to think of it from, than a box chart is an XBO chart, because the X, the transformation, precedes the natural change in behavior, which generates the outcomes. So I, I describe it as a very simple tool to learn and a very hard tool to master because it's pretty easy to define a behavior that we want to see different in somebody. And you can pretty easily figure out what kind of outcomes you would get if you saw that, if you saw that change in behavior. But figuring out the internal transformation that's required to generate a sustainable change in behavior, that's actually a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the Enneagram is a personality model that's been incredibly powerful for me personally, for members of my team and for our clients, and what distinguishes it from other personality models. You know, most everybody has heard of Myers-Briggs and DISC and Personalysis or Berkman. There's just so many that are out there. And there's this universe of behavioral personality models. And they're predictive. You know, we find your personality type and we say, well, in these circumstances, you're likely to behave a particular way. And that absolutely has some value. What distinguishes the Enneagram is it is not a behavioral tool. It's a tool about motivations, which is to say uh, any personality type within the Enneagram, and there's nine types within the Enneagram, can do any behavior. The question is, why are they doing the behavior? And the Enneagram gives us some insights into how to wake up to those things. And it opens up new choice in areas of, uh, of our life where maybe we self-sabotage or maybe we didn't think we had choice before. So those tools in combination can be incredibly powerful because especially as we're thinking about the X of the box chart, the transformation, the Enneagram gives us really powerful insights into what may need to shift internally to generate more healthy behaviors for us, for our colleagues, for our customers. 
Mm-hmm. So how do managers um, bring those into the workplace? How do we how do we apply these extremely powerful but also very personal tools? Yeah, so a, a, a box chart's pretty simple. Once you've once you've experienced it, once you understand the methodology of just a quick little chart that you can generate on a whiteboard or on a computer really quickly, that's an easy one to train somebody how to how to do it. As I said, it's like chess, though. It's kind of like you can learn that the knight makes a little L. But to master chess takes a lifetime. I think the box chart may be sort of some, similar to that. The Enneagram is a little different. Um, the way I describe it is you, you can't expect any evangelism until people have experienced transformation, which is until people have had a transformative experience with the Enneagram, there's no reason for them to export it to somebody else. So it's a little more of a slow model. Uh, it's not a, hey, we're going to train everybody on the Enneagram and suddenly everybody's an Enneagram expert. Somebody, it's more of an organic growth model within an organization. And the way we do that is we start at the top and we work with senior leaders to help them discover their Enneagram type and what that means for them. And then, at, then it starts to expand where people have ears to hear those truths that many people don't want to hear. Um, that's how it tends to expand within an organization. Uh, can you give me an example of how uh, a leader might use those tools maybe on themselves or towards their team? Um, I guess like a demonstrable result, because in, uh, for somebody new to this kind of concept, it is very, it's a very heady concept. Um, so how do we translate that into like results, uh, you know, or workable, doable action items for leaders and their staff? Sure. Uh, I'll use myself as an example here. For, so I'm 49 years old. For the first 44 years of my life, I've known that I'm a dominant personality. If there's a power void, I tend to fill it. Uh, I can move fast. I make, I make fast decisions. Uh, I move boldly. Sometimes people get in the way and they get a little knocked out of the way. It can feel a little rough sometimes if I'm heading towards an objective. And as I say, for the first 44 years of my life, I just thought, well, look, if you're not strong enough to stand up to me or keep up with me, well, that's your problem because you're just not as strong and self-reliant as I am. I know I sound like a lovely person, don't I? (laughs) Um, And then the Enneagram five years ago, once I started to encounter it, invited me to consider that maybe the reason that I tend to dominate is because I don't want to be dominated by other people and I don't want to feel weak, and I don't want to feel vulnerable, and I don't want people to take advantage of me. And I've been hurt in the past, and so this is a defense mechanism that I have to not feel like I'm out of control. So another way to say that would be if I plant the flag first, then nobody else can plant the flag there. I own the territory. I get to define the terms. And the Enneagram invited me to consider that maybe feeling vulnerable and feeling weak is not fatal, And maybe there's some times where as a leader, I'm called to feel weak and vulnerable. And that's what's best for the people around me instead of just bowling forward and people get hurt and it's okay. So practically speaking, if we're in an environment where the leadership that's required of me is quieter, smaller, uh, more patient, then I'm going to get better results if I can manage that. And I understand what's causing me to want to not do that in the first place. Mm -hmm. I also have the ability, if I'm a leader and there's a space that calls for boldness and intensity and electricity, then I can bring that as well because I still have that ability. But now as a leader, I have choice. And the way I sometimes describe that, being from the great Hoosier state of Indiana, is, you know, basketball is is our, is our, our, our state sport. 
unofficially, certainly, maybe officially, I don't know. But I was always a right-handed basketball player when I was young. I could dribble right really well because I'm a righty. And I could drive to the hoop. I could make some layups. Good to go. But once I started getting into older leagues and people figured out that I was a right-handed dribbler, all they had to do was scooch over to the left a little bit, shut down my driving lane, and I was ineffective on the court. And then I had to learn to dribble left-handed. And that left hand just doesn't dribble as well as the right does. It feels awkward. And I eventually got a little better at dribbling left-handed. Never felt as good as dribbling right, but I gained some skill in it, and it opened up possibilities for me on the basketball court. So now, as a leader, right-handed dribbling for me is taking charge. Left-handed dribbling is be patient, be vulnerable, allow yourself to not feel strong all the time. And it takes more energy for me to do that, but now I have choice that I didn't even have before. Because before, I was just thought, well, this is just the way I am. But of course, that was creating a lot of self-sabotage in the way that I was showing up as a leader. So what we find is each of the, the nine Enneagram types tends to self-sabotage in some somewhat predictable ways that tends to get in the way of relationships, tends to erode trust, tends to generate less good results from a business and a practical standpoint. So if we can help people identify those areas of self-sabotage and help them understand the motivation behind it and help them wake up to that motivation, then we start giving them the, even the possibility of dribbling left-handed. So from the other perspective there, um, these are, you know, ways to help people succeed. But what in what ways have you seen, uh, I guess, people make mistakes uh, this way that could have been remedied had they paid closer attention to their their needs and, and how they manage? Are you asking after somebody knows their Enneagram type? Or are you saying, like, what kind of mistakes can be avoided through better self-knowledge? Actually, let's let's talk about both, because I feel like there's a, a a lot of people could have a very clear before and after, and, and this would be a good way to help people figure out what that would look like for them. So I'm going to answer this in a way that may not be exactly what you're asking, so feel free to redirect me. Um, one of the things that I find is there's sort of a Facebooky way to look at the Enneagram, which is, you know, there's a lot of funny memes out there, but it caricatures each of the Enneagram types. And I don't think that's particularly helpful. And if we allow ourselves to think of ourselves as an Enneagram caricature, we can start to excuse our own behaviors. Um, I'm a type eight. And so if I say, well, I'm a type eight, so I'm dominant. Well, that starts giving me an excuse to just right-handed dribble all the time. That's particularly unhelpful. It's also unhelpful if we start caricaturing other people and instead of helping them mature, in a pathway of growth and healing and wholeness within their Enneagram type. If we just say, well, you are who you are and you know, you're never going to grow and that's just the way you are, then people start to believe that as well. I mean, people live up to and down to our expectations sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm guilty of that too. I'm, I'm a two and uh, one of my good friends is a two and we send each other the memes about twos because we know that's us and it's really hard to change. Well, I'm here to tell you, Meg, that there's... <laughs> There's possibility and growth. And the key is recognizing what is really going on. So for an Enneagram type two, for you and your pal, you know, it's so important for you to be thought of as the helpful one. You're the one who has the answers and helps other people. You're not the one with problems that needs to be helped. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it, it resonates too. I, I can see exactly how this is. It goes into play in how I work and how a lot of twos work. Is that like we... Uh, welcome more tasks because it gives us more chances to be helpful. But then sometimes, like, for example, my manager will see that's a lot of tasks that you have. Is that something you want? Like, so it really does apply to every part of 
work and personal life. Yeah. So, so let's do, let's take an example. Let's, let's look at like a customer service center. Suppose we've got a CSR who's a type two and a customer calls into the type two. Let's call her Jane. Let's call her Meg. No, let's call her Jane. <laughs> and, uh, and Jane answers the phone. And this is an angry customer who really wants something that's, uh, let's just say exceptional. And Jane in the back of her mind knows we can't give this to the customer. But Jane doesn't want to say that to the customer because then the customer may not like her. And Jane's very sense of self-worth is based on what other people think of her because she's a two. And so she says, well, you know what? This would be really hard. Let me talk to my boss and see if I can convince him. And then Jane calls her manager and her manager says, Jane, you know, we can't do that. And Jane is like, well, I have already told him that I'm talking to you. And then the manager has to get involved and be the bad guy and say, we can't do that. And Jane could have easily handled it at her level if she had just realized there was a way to be kind but firm and set a boundary with the customer instead of caring so much about what that customer thought about her and whether or not that customer liked her and thought she was nice. Mm -hmm. So if Jane is not aware of what's going on internally and how she's attaching her identity to what other people think of her, well, she's not going to get out of that racket and she's going to keep passing those people up to the manager and the manager's going to keep getting upset about that and saying, Jane's not very good at her job because she can't solve these problems at her level. But if, if the answer back is just, hey, start solving these at your level or you're going to be fired eventually, like that's just trying to coerce a new behavior. The better conversation is let's get to the X. Let's get to what is going on on the inside. And the start of that conversation is, Jane, to what degree do you think it might be true that you are attaching your identity to what these customers think of you and you don't want them to think of you as mean. Now, I don't know what the answer is going to be to that for Jane, but that's at least the start of a different kind of conversation than, hey, stop doing this, start doing this. Because Jane knows that it's not working. Jane's just not sure how to stop it. Mm -hmm. And that's a good uh, example, too, of the before and after. So if if she didn't maybe didn't understand, like, the the pattern or did couldn't see the pattern like could this help identify these kind of patterns sure absolutely um so if you if you when people have clarity about their enneagram type sometimes we talk about it as being in on the joke so the way i describe it is like god was in on my joke for 44 years but i wasn't and then for the last five years i've started to get in on my joke and i've started to let other people in on my joke so my wife like when i start doing something stupid at home she'll pause and maybe stroke her chin a little bit and she'll say what are you feeling weak about right now, Chip? And that's a great pattern interrupt for me because then I think, yeah, I'm starting to get like dominant. I'm getting domineering here. What's going on? What am I feeling weak about? And so when we have you know, verbal cues that we can use to pattern interrupt with each other and, re and help each other realize, maybe you're being a little compulsive here. Maybe there's something driving the train you're not aware of. That can be really beneficial in a work environment, especially if you've got your boss who's doing that to try to help you become more effective in your role. Mm -hmm. So it really like the, the journey starts with the manager, the managerial team themselves is for them to understand how they can help other people work better. Yeah. Ideally, I would say in an organization, it starts with the CEO, but it doesn't have to start there. But the work that we do at Kairos, we always start with the CEO because we find culture change always starts with the CEO. But, but I have another point I want to make. Um, you said the journey starts and I like that language. It is a journey. I think it's a lifetime journey. And just starting to wake up to your Enneagram type is a start. Uh, another phrase that's sometimes used to describe the, that psychological defense mechanism is ego addiction. 
And I love that language. Some people think it's like too harsh or it's too offensive, but I've discovered in my own life, like I'm addicted to feeling strong. And if you ever hear alcoholics talk about their alcoholism, you never hear an alcoholic say, I used to be an alcoholic, right? They say, I'm an alcoholic. I'm sober right now, but I'm an alcoholic. And I think our journey in the Enneagram is waking up to our addiction, our ego addiction, which is different. For you, the addiction is to feeling needed and valued, right? And, and, and feeling helpful. To me, the addiction is to feeling strong. We have a very different addiction. But I think for you, you're a lifelong addict. I'm a lifelong addict. We're just on a journey to more and more sobriety and being able to handle more and more temptation. But life is gonna keep throwing things that tempt our addiction all the time and we're gonna slip. And part of the what's great for me about the Enneagram is that it gives me not only some compassion for myself and the mess that I am, it gives me great compassion for you. Like I look at you, Megan, I'm like, I don't wanna be a two. It looks like it's really hard to be a two. <laughs> See, I think the same. I don't wanna lead, that's scary. Yeah, and, and I don't, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I know being an eight is hard, but being a two looks really hard to me as well. And so I can have compassion for you on your journey. And it, um, my wife had a great wisdom. Um, we were working with our son a year or two ago and he was getting too involved in some video games. And we had set some boundaries and then we found he was sneaking in computer time when he wasn't authorized to have it. And she said, she said, treat him like an addict, not a criminal. And I thought, oh, that's good. Like, that's just brilliant. And if we can apply that same wisdom into our workplace, when we see people doing things that are just, they're creating messes, right? Like they're not being effective in their work. They're creating relational messes. How do we start treating them like addicts and not like criminals? Mm -hmm. And it's not that we say, oh, it's okay you're an addict. No worries, you don't have to do anything about that, right? Instead, it's like, hey, we wanna help you on your journey of sobriety, but the first step is you gotta acknowledge you're an addict. So. Again, I recognize ego addiction is like, it feels kind of harsh language. It's like, I'm not, I'm not an addict, but I think part of that Enneagram journey is everybody waking up to the fact that our ego is addicted to things that we may not be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. And we all get, you know, serotonin and dopamine from different things. So like if everybody knows what everybody else feels satisfied in their job doing, then that uh, we're all going to be aligned a little better. That's true. And there's sometimes where there are things that are required in your job that don't give you a dopamine hit and you still got to do it. And sometimes that's left-handed dribbling. It, it does not make me feel good to wait and to feel weak, but it is what is required of me sometimes as a leader. And so for me, there's a choice to sacrifice, to put energy into something that I otherwise would not, not like to do because that is what is selfless of me as a leader and what is required for me by the people around me. And I think that's true for every Enneagram type. It's we have to sacrifice because that's just life. Like you don't always get your way. 18 month olds think they should always get their way and they throw a temper tantrum when they don't get their way. We can't be 18 month olds. We're, we're older and more mature than that. Mm -hmm. So really it's it's the tone of management, C-suite down, even, even just, you know, one step above uh, the people who don't have any managers or people who don't have any employees that like that's where you set the tone and that's where you can help guide the vision um so how would you how do you use the tools to to keep everybody aligned to this vision yeah um i think i don't think you use the box chart or the enneagram specifically to help people stay aligned but i think when people are trying 
to be aligned to it and trying to operate in a way that's consistent and they can't figure out why it's hard for them, that's, that's where the, a box chart and Enneagram, the Enneagram knowledge can be particularly helpful. But to the point of how do we keep people aligned uh, towards a vision and a mission, that's hard. Um, most organizations don't have uh, a crystal clear mission you know, it was, it was written by a committee and it sounds like it was written by a committee and it's wishy-washy and it's mom and apple pie. And you're like, well, that doesn't inspire me. It's not, that's not distinguished from any other company in our space. Um, and vision is hard too. So I think it helps, first of all, to define mission and vision. And I, I define them in some fairly, uh, I try to be consistent in the way that I think about those. Mission to me is why your organization exists. What problem does your organization solve? And if, if you think about the entire enterprise, there's an enterprise level mission, and then there can also be departmental mission. So within a customer service organization, there may be a more specific mission that is in service to, mm -hmm. the, to the broader mission. Um, that doesn't change over time. Like the mission of an organization, why it exists, the problem it solves. You know, if, if you're shifting mission, you're really shifting organization. And that sometimes happens, but generally an organization needs to be consistent to their mission over the long haul. Vision is a snapshot in the future time and it's creating a future memory. And psychologists teach us that future memories are just as powerful for us emotionally as past memories. So a vision is creating a story for a point in time of the future that pulls us forward. And I think where people, um, part of what makes it hard to align people to a vision is because we have sloppy and bad visions that don't align and inspire people. But one thing that people do in visions that makes it hard is they, they think of vision as eternal. Well, we're going to have a world where, you know, cats and dogs get along in the future. Okay. But tell me what it's going to look like in 18 months. Like if you give me a vision of 18 months, that gives me something that is specific and concrete that I could head towards. Tell me a story of what life looks like different in 18 months than it looks like now, and I'll head towards that. And you know, most of us as leaders are not particularly adept at storytelling. And those of us who are good at storytelling, we're probably not that good at telling future stories because that requires a whole new imagination. Um, so um, for my same son who was sneaking video game time, there was a story, he, he ends up looking like the goat of this story. He's actually an amazing kid, but um, Maybe five or six years ago, he was like, Dad, I'm hungry. I'm like, great. He's like, I want a sandwich. I'm like, great. He's like, can you make me a sandwich? I'm like, mm, you can make yourself a sandwich. He's like, but I want peanut butter. And I said, well, then make yourself a peanut butter sandwich. I'm not good at spreading peanut butter. Well, do you know how you get good at spreading peanut butter? Yeah, I spread peanut butter. <laughs> so like with vision casting... And, and, and helping people stay aligned to the vision is like, how do we get good at it? You do it. Like, you're not going to be good at it at first. The only way we good at, get good at spreading peanut butter is spreading peanut butter. So um, I think practically speaking, there's also a way, if you have a clear vision, when people are behaving in a particular way, you can make a comment and say, oh, man, that is so aligned with what we're trying to accomplish here with our mission and vision. Or you can say, oh, I love the effort you're putting into this. I feel like it's not 100% aligned with what we're, trying to, what we're trying to accomplish. There's probably a way to bring this more in alignment. 
So get the mission first, get a time-bound vision, and then do the actual hard work of when you see people doing things consistent with it or inconsistent with it, call it out, name it, make that part of the conversation. And that's that's something that applies independent of scale, uh, like size of company, size of team, even independent of your end customer, whether it's B2B, B2C, um, having your mission is, everybody has to do that. Absolutely. When everything goes to hell in a handbasket and you've got nothing left, at least you have the mission. And so um, you can give detailed instructions about how you want people to behave, where you want them to go, but things change. Like, you know, you get a particular caller who doesn't fit your script, you know, uh, when a customer calls in and customer service is knowledge work. It's not, it's not factory work. We're not manufacturing widgets. And I think it's, it's good to have process and procedure and scripts and ways we, you know, the default way we're going to do it, but everybody should have the freedom to, uh, to serve a customer and to serve the company, right? You got to balance the tension between two of those mm-hmm. where you start with that, 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 that process, that basic default way to do it, but they should be able to deviate from that in order to achieve the mission. It's also about empowering the the people in your contact center or in your organization to to make to take these deviations to to do what they might need to do that might be outside of like the the standard process they've done before. Absolutely, and and um, part of empowerment also is about creating a culture where feedback is offered and received as an, as a gift in three hundred and sixty degrees, and so I think probably. There are too many call centers where there's a one-on-one relationship between a CSR and their manager. And there's probably a social relationship between CSRs, but they don't necessarily feel free or they even have permission to give performance feedback to each other. But when you create a community where people believe helping other people grow is their responsibility, and then you get it's not just I and my manager are in on my joke, but we're all in on each other's jokes, that's when you start seeing real power of people being able to help when I see my colleagues self-sabotaging and the manager's not around and didn't see it. Can I be there to also give the prompt and say, hey, Chip, what are you feeling weak about? And that's when you start seeing real power that creates a self-perpetuating, self-growing, self-healing organization that is not dependent on one strong leader. It's building capacity internally within the entire organization. Mm-hmm. This has been a theme, too, that's come up in, in other uh, episodes we've recorded about how uh, the people in your contact center are uh, should be one of your most expensive resources because they are extremely skilled. When you get them trained and they have everything they need to do what they need to do, then they just you just let them go and they're just incredible at it. And so that, you know, like you said, it's knowledge work. So they have to understand that they have the full support of management to, to do a good job. Well, especially if you get a, a call center that has highly technical requirements for the things they're trying to serve their customers in, that becomes even more knowledge work. So it's not just the knowledge work of interpersonal interaction, but it's how do I bring all that knowledge technically to bear in a way that's beneficial for the customer and for the enterprise. So we're coming up on our time here. So uh, we've talked a lot about all the ways to get started. So what would you say is your biggest piece of advice for executives? How do, how do, they, how do they even kick this off? Where do we go? Well, there's, uh, there are many resources about the Enneagram. One of the best that we've found is called the Enneagram Institute, and it's enneagraminstitute.com. 
Enneagram is spelled E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. And there you can read about all nine types. And what we tell people to do is if you're trying to discern your Enneagram type, read all nine and you'll be able to flick a few of them off the table. You're like, not it, not it, not it. And, you know, narrow it down to two or three or four and then talk to somebody who has some competence with the Enneagram and not just in a Facebooky way, but somebody who actually has some depth of knowledge and let that person help you sort through what your type might be. And then once you've got it down to one or two, try that type on as like a sweater. Wear it around for a while and say, does this fit me? Like this sweater says my motivation and the reason I do things is this. I'm gonna start paying attention and seeing if that's true. And um, the other advice we've got as people read their Enneagram types is figure out the one that most makes you cringe and that's probably your type. What What we recommend is that people do not take an Enneagram test And the reason for that is most of the tests are too behavioral and not enough about motivation. Um, Most of the tests, the ones that do actually talk about motivations, well, part of the theory of the Enneagram is that we're blind to some degree to our own motivations. So if we ask people their motivations, they may not know. So we may not get accurate results. And the third and most important reason we recommend people not take a test is because it robs them of the journey of self-discovery that comes from considering, could this be true about me? Could this be true about me? So even asking the question is a healthy journey for people. And when a test says, oh, I answered a few questions. Now I know I'm a three or a four or a six or whatever. Sometimes it's wrong and it sends them in an unhealthy direction and it robs them of that journey of self-discovery. And it doesn't really give you a, a clear uh, picture of, of how to get better if you're not, if you haven't, if you're pointing the wrong direction. That's right. Um, we've got a sample box chart on our website, kairosconsulting.com. And there's a tools section in the menu. And then there's the box chart very prominently displayed. And um, as I say, very simple tool to learn. It's not rocket science or not rocket surgery, as my friend says. Um, <laughs> or rocket appliances is another. <laughs> right. Uh, could you give us a, a scenario about like maybe just an example of a, a way somebody could pull up the box chart and use it without ever having seen it before? Something to think about the box chart is the box chart is a written expression of a particular mindset. And the hardest thing we find when we're working with teams and helping them build box charts is it's easy to get the B, it's easy to get the O, but they don't want to spend as much time in the X because that's harder. Like it's psychologically draining to try to figure that stuff out. And so we know we've won with a client when one of the client members will say, wait a second, what's the transformation here? Like we're talking a lot about behaviors, but what's really going on on the inside? Okay, now you've adopted the mindset of the box chart and that's what's most powerful. Instead of just telling people you're doing X, I want to see Y instead. Because most people, if they've tried to do Y instead and are stuck, they need help figuring out why they're stuck. They don't need somebody else to tell them just do why again. Yeah. And that, that goes back to managers understanding too who they are and who's working for them. Yes. And to your point, you can use it on yourself. It's the mindset of, okay, I want to do this thing. I want to start flossing my teeth every day. If I floss my teeth every day, I think it'll be good for my heart health. Maybe my breath will smell a little better. I'll have nice and shiny white teeth and I'll get that modeling job I've always been looking for. But why is it so hard for me to floss my teeth every day? Well, that's an interesting question to apply to yourself. So instead of just beating yourself up and oh, I, gotta, I gotta white knuckle it and floss every day, what's making it hard for you to floss in the first place? And it sounds like too, once you get 
once you get through the box chart and you know your Enneagram, you could figure out exactly why on yourself. Well, I find the places where I'm screwing things up in my life tend to come back to the place that I'm feeling weak about something and then I become domineering and then I mess something up and then I have to apologize. So if we can short circuit that whole cycle, my life gets a lot easier. I mean, wouldn't that be the same for everybody, no matter your number? If you could just predict the future and work around it, then... It is, but, you know, it, it's a journey and we got to have grace for ourselves. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to answer your last question of what's a way to get started. As people start their Enneagram journey, the most important thing to do is what we call non-judgmental self-observation. Just start noticing what's happening in your life in ways you haven't before. Like once, once I was aware that I started to take charge because I was feeling weak, then I saw it everywhere. Then it was hard to not judge myself and not feel weak about feeling weak. So the non-judgmental part is how can you just stand aside yourself and observe it and say, well, that's interesting. That's crazy. Look at what's going on there. And part of it is even laughing at it. Like, this is ridiculous. I feel weak. So I just took charge of that conversation and made a fool of myself. That's crazy. So it's like, it's like that ego addiction or that psychological defense mechanism. I kind of, sometimes it feels like, like a big bird of prey that's got its talons stuck in our rib cage and it's just got us. And once you notice it and can start to observe it over time, somehow, almost magically, it starts to loosen its grip and it doesn't have us in its grip as much. And I'm just grateful in the past five years, of course, it's still an issue for me, but I don't feel like it's got, it's got me in its grip and it's like, there's no way out. I feel more freedom. I feel more, I feel more health. I feel more wholeness in that space. And so when people can get to a place where they are observing their own addiction, noticing it, and not judging it and saying, well, this is where I am right now. I want to be better, but I don't hate myself right now. It's just where I am. That's a really healthy place to start. That's a wrap on today's episode of Unlocking Customer Service. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Play to get notifications when new episodes drop each week. Or head to sharpencx.com podcast to catch up on all the latest episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review so we can reach more people like you.